Matthew chapter 1. In our D group readings now, we've moved to the New Testament. So that's where you should have been this week if, if you're thinking, wait a minute, I was still reading Old Testament. Okay, that's fine. Just a little bit behind, that's all right. But what that does do for others of you, if you've not been involved in our D group reading, now is a great time to jump in. We're starting a new section, so to speak. You're not coming in the middle of a book. You're not coming in halfway through the Old Testament. We're starting the New Testament now. And uh, I know last year we did the New Testament, but we did it more extensively. We read the whole thing, right? I'm looking for Tom or Amy's eyeballs so I can... I think, we, I think we did the whole thing. We may have left out a few chapters here and there, but not many if we did. This time, we're, it, it's a, more of an overview of the New Testament. But now's a great time to jump in if you haven't. And we're looking at the genealogy. Now, some of y'all will... Especially those of you who, how many of y'all, let me ask you this, how many of you write in the margin of your Bible when you hear a preacher preach on that particular passage? Does anybody in here do that? Okay, I see that hand, I see that hand. Yeah, all right. Well, if y'all are paying attention, then you're going to see Michael, December 2018, on this passage. If you were here that Sunday, did, did, did y'all miss that? Did y'all not write that one down? Did anybody have that written down? Was it 19? Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, right. Yeah, the, the genealogy, I think, was 2018. Uh, so, it, you've heard this before. Except we're going to take it a little differently this morning. We're going to look at it from a different perspective. Uh, the last time I preached it was your, for you to examine where you came from. We've all got a past. And we looked at the fact that everybody in Jesus' uh, lineage here has a past. There was something for each of them that, that, that they would not have been particularly proud of. Well, this morning, we're, we're going to look at some of those same things, but from a different perspective. This morning, we are continuing our series, Get Out. Remember last month it was get back in, get back into those disciplines that maybe have fallen to the wayside because of just the weird year we've been a part of. Get back into those disciplines. And in this month we're looking at get out. Now get out of those things, those habits, those bad habits, that hopefully once you get back into the good habits begin to expose themselves to you. And this morning it's get out of your prejudices. Now, in this passage, and, and let's just read it so we familiarize ourselves with it, we, we remember some of the names, because we're going to go back and talk, to the, talk about some of these people, not all of them, but most of them. Matthew 1, uh, verses 1 through 16, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers, the twelve tribes, right? Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. We're going to get into that story. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. These are all people we don't know that much about, if anything. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. We've just read through Kings just a couple of months ago, right? So these should be names that, that click for you. We may not have covered all of them, but maybe you just got curious and said, I'm going to read all of Kings. These names should click. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Manasseh fathered Ammon. Ammon fathered Josiah. And Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. We just talked about that just a few weeks ago. 
After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel, Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel fathered Abiud, Abiud fathered Eliakim, Eliakim fathered Azor, Azor fathered Zadok, Zadok fathered Achim, Achim fathered Eliud, Eliud fathered Eleazar, Eleazar fathered Mathen, Mathen fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Christ." Now, if you remember back two years ago, a little more than two years ago, we, we see in this genealogy the full humanity of Jesus. And, and we talked about the difference between Luke's genealogy and Matthew's genealogy. And is one royal and one is more biological? Is one like Matthew's? Is it Joseph and, and Luke is Mary's? So that we see uh, their two lines. We don't know. We do know that Matthew does not include everybody. So when he says fathered, it's, it's literally the ancestor of, so there are some gaps, and, and, and the time, there absolutely has to be some gaps, because Ruth came along in the time of the judges, and, she, and there aren't enough people, there aren't enough generations listed here to get to David. There were other people in between, Matthew's just hitting the high points. As a matter of fact, he's just making a theological point. Fourteen generations would be the fullness of time. It's a, it's, a, it's a numerical thing to say, and this era finished with this guy, and the next era began with this guy, and so on and so forth, until we get to the new era of Jesus. So as we look at these names, and, and some of them are familiar to us, some of, of their stories and their histories, if, if we've spent much time in, in Bible study and grown up in, in Sunday school and, and Bible school and other opportunities to hear the, the grand stories of the Bible, some of these th stories are going to be very familiar to us. We're going to hear the names and immediately know some things about them. But today... What I want you to see as you look at these names, as we look at these people, I want you to see not just their stories, but we need to see the prejudices in our hearts that would have led us and would lead us today to reject many of the people in the line of Jesus. Of Jesus. We would have rejected them as unfit for the Messiah's line, no, they cannot be the ancestor of Jesus. God, we need to take this path somewhere else. Let's, let's follow one that's maybe a little more circuitous, but we get some good, some better people in there. But it would also be a prejudice that would see them as unfit, not just for the Messiah, Messiah's line, but for the Messiah's regenerative touch. We would look at some of these people and say, I don't care if they go to hell. They deserve it. That is a prejudice that we need to look at. And you might say, no prejudice would keep you from witnessing or telling somebody about Jesus or inviting them to church. But ask yourself, how many people in sulfur right now are there that aren't like you in a lot of ways that you have invited to join you at church? Let me ask that in maybe a little different way so it's a little easier to understand. After I said it, I thought, well, that was convoluted and difficult. How many times have you asked somebody to come to church with you that doesn't, in most ways, look, act, think, and believe just like you do? How often have you gone outside of your circle, outside of your comfort zone, just to invite somebody to church? And I'm not even talking about the, the broader conversation of witnessing for Christ. We all have prejudices, every one of us. And if we're doing it right, we are working to squash those prejudices. I have to do it daily. And have been doing, uh, doing the work on some of them, some of the most ingrained in me, for 25 years I've told you my own story of, of, of racism, and here just a day or two ago, a friend of mine from college posted a picture of a, uh, a, 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 
a friend, there's a word I'm looking at, he was friends to all of us, a mutual friend, thank you, a mutual friend who actually died while we were in college. He had a congenitive heart disease, a heart issue, and, and he died while we were in college. He, he, he was a black guy, his name was Walter Foster. He is the pivotal point in my life when I began to work against my own racism. He was the friend that began that process for me because he was the first black friend I'd ever had. So I recognize that, but I still work on that. And that is just one prejudice. This morning, I, I'm, I'm using a broad definition of the term prejudice. It could include racism and bigotry, and it does. But mainly what I want us to see as I use the term prejudice is a preconceived notion about someone based on very little data about that person. I don't know who you're talking about, but that person is this. Oh, yeah, no, I don't like that kind of person. That is a prejudice, period. And it doesn't matter what it is. And, and that's what we're going to look at with all of these different people in the, in the lineage of Jesus. Our, our prejudices affect who we think can attend church with us or who we think would attend church with us. Our prejudices affect who we'll talk to, who we will sit by, who we will invite to church, and even who we will share the gospel with. Our prejudices affect nearly every aspect of our lives. And, and if, if, it, if you think it doesn't, just spend a day with yourself. Driving down the road, walking through the store, and, 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 and be intentional about making, uh, making note of your thoughts. When you see this person or that person, when you hear that conversation or hear about what's going on, what is your immediate thought about them? Black, poor, white, rich, snowflake, Democrat, liberal, Republican, conservative, fundamentalist. It doesn't matter what your label is. If a comment, if a, the sight of a person triggers a response immediately and you base everything you want to know or think you could know about that person based on that one piece of data that is a prejudice and every one of us has those we all have different ones we all struggle with different ones more than others and this is much much more as we're going to see this is much much more than a black merely a black and white issue a lot of what i'm going to talk about this morning affects a Small city, suburban-ish, white church. There's a reason for that. That's what we are. So uh, the things I'm going to mention will be our particular views. But this sermon could be preached in any church with maybe different prejudices addressed. But I, even don't, I don't even think so, really, because... The text tells us about certain people, and that's what we're looking at, the certain people in Scripture. So let's start at the beginning of the lineage. Let's start with Abraham. Abraham is a one percenter. Now, if you're not in politics much and you don't pay attention to, to all of that, then the term one percenter may not mean anything to you. But one percenter in politics means the richest one percent of the population. They're the ones that control everything, and they're the Illuminati, and they're the Roth, Rothschilds. Uh, they're this, they're that. They're, they're the ones that, and, and we get stepped on. We, the little people, we, the not one percent. The other 99 percent, that is the prejudice toward the one percent. Abraham was extremely wealthy. Probably, I haven't done a, a huge economic study of Scripture, but probably the only person, certainly that comes to mind immediately, that would have been richer than Abraham was Job. Job was probably the richest guy in the Bible. 
Abraham was not far behind. The dude had an entire army of his own. All right? He owned thousands and thousands of livestock. He was an incredibly wealthy person. Abraham was a one percenter. We would have called him, likely some of us, an elite. Abraham just didn't get it. Now, he had an agricultural job. We would say that was a blue-collar job, but he was in no way middle class, and he had moved far beyond taking care of the animals himself. He had people for that. Abraham just lived to enjoy his wealth. And our assumptions about the 1% is we assume, well, there are many, but for one, we assume they cheated to get there somehow. There's no way somebody can be that rich without having cheated. We assume that they're oppressive. There's no way that they could be that wealthy and take care of people or care about people. Or we just flat out resent their success. They're rich and I'm not. Therefore, I don't like them for that. Number of prejudices that we would have toward the 1%. The beauty, though, of this uh, passage and this uh, take on the passages, we have the same prejudices in reverse to the other end of the economic spectrum. We just kind of reverse those assumptions if they're poor. Well, if they're poor, they must be lazy or ignorant. They must be leeches on society or some other epithet that we can come up with, primarily so we don't have to deal with it. Our prejudices come out, particularly as a middle-class group, against both ends. They're useful at times, but our prejudices come out. Abraham was a one-percenter. Jacob, Abraham's grandson, was a mama's boy. I struggled with what to, how to label Jacob. He was a mama's boy. Esau was the favorite. Isaac loved Esau. Esau was a, a man's man. He hunted. He was hairy. He growled at things. He had power tools and he knew how to use them. I have power tools. And I'm sure someday I might actually use one of them. But he, that's who he was. He stayed at home. He was uh, uh, Rachel's favorite. Rebecca's favorite. Rebecca's favorite. Rachel and Leah. Yeah. He was Rebecca's favorite. He hung around mama all day. Oh, she said, oh, baby, you don't have to work. We'll get somebody else to do that. Oh, I'll clean up your room for you. You don't have to. We'll get a servant to do that. Oh, you don't want to. That's okay. You don't have to do that today. He was a mama's boy. We would today easily take the step to assuming he was effeminate. Or we might even go further and say that he was homosexual. We would make those steps easily today if we saw the same guy in society. We would say, well, at the very least, he's metrosexual. He cares too much about the way he looks. He, he shouldn't go get pedicures and, and manicures. And let me just say, I do not get manicures. But I love a pedicure. Except when they scrape the feet. I'm really ticklish and I nearly break the handles on the chair when they're doing that. We, we, we make these assumptions though, right? I'll, I'll, a quick story just about pedicures. It's hilarious. In my last church in, in Texas, there was a guy in the church occasionally, rancher. I mean, imagine, take, <laughs> take your prejudice, take your stereotype of a Texas rancher, and this was the guy. Whatever you're envisioning, envisioning, that was him. Tough, gnarled, weathered, tanned, cowboy hat, boots, just no nonsense. I, I never wanted to argue with him. I just said, hey, and, and, and you know, sure, yes, sir, whatever. You are tougher than me. You could... You could lasso me and tie me up like that calf thing, and, and, and I, I just I wouldn't be able to do anything. And so I, I nearly fell out of the chair one day when social media, Facebook, you learn all sorts of things about people. There's a picture of him. His, he was not on social media. No, trust me. He did not have a Facebook account, but his wife did. 
And there was a picture of them in a salon, and he's getting a pedicure. I nearly fell out. Didn't fit my stereotype. Didn't fit my prejudice. With Jacob being a mama's boy, it was easy to, 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 to move into the prejudice of and just read about him. We don't have to see him. We just read about him and go, Jacob needed to get out of the tent and go to work because he's not working like he should. And what's funny is our culture today decries that toxic masculinity. And, and well, they should. The, the, the idea of a, a, a mean, brawling, arrogant man, that, that is not who we should be. That is not biblical in the least. But, but what blows my mind is our culture, watch TV, watch movies, watch commercials. Our culture automatically assumes if you are not toxically masculine, you're gay. They got no middle ground for this. Nothing in the middle that said, and, and that's, it, it is most ridiculous because our culture has said, that they set the standard and then say, now we're going to blow the standard up. You can't just be a regular guy. You can't be a biblical man. There, I, I, I give you this example and then I'll move on. There was a, a movie years ago called uh, In and Out. Kevin Klein. I don't know if anybody in here has seen that movie. Kevin Klein, Tom Selleck. Um, huh? Was who in it? No, it wasn't, no, not Robin Williams. That was Birdcage. That was another, yeah, that one was different. Um, in this movie, In and Out, Kevin Klein played a, uh, a band director at the high school that loved to dance. And he found out, again, I believe from the internet or from the local news anyway, that everybody thought he was gay. And he wasn't. Until everybody started thinking he was. And then he started thinking, I might be. And by the end of the movie, he decides that he is because everyone has pressured him into believing that he was. Because, why? He didn't fit the standard of what the men in that town or the media in that town thought a man should be. It's a stupid movie. I mean, that's just a ridiculous idea, and yet that is what our culture thinks they can do. And, and, and the sad part is the church and our assumptions and our prejudices about people when we meet them, when we see them, we do the same thing often. So Jacob was a mama's boy. We move on down a little bit. We uh, get to Tamar. Going to skip Judah and go to Tamar, who was the mother of Perez and Zerah. Now, we automatically make assumptions about her because she's female. Part of that is because of the culture of the Bible. We make some very, uh, not just assumptions, we understand what the culture of the, the, the biblical age was toward women. She didn't have power. She didn't have much authority. She didn't have a lot of uh, resources without men, though there are plenty of examples of, of the opposite of that. A, a Proverbs 31 woman is actually the opposite of a, uh, a woman with no uh, authority, no resources, and no power. But generally, that was what was expected. So we automatically make assumptions about her as a female. And we do this today. We look at a, a woman and think we, she's too feminine or she's not feminine enough. And so we make assumptions about that. We, they, she cares too much about her looks or she doesn't care enough about her looks. So we make assumptions about that. And usually they go in line with uh, whether she's feminine or not feminine enough. And then we begin to jump back up Two, the one we just talked about, making sexuality uh, assumptions about them based on that. Or we need to make sure that she stays in her lane. There are certain things women can do and there are certain things women can't do. And physically, that is probably a true statement. There, there likely are physical things that women can't do that men can. But I would be willing to bet that somewhere out there, there's a woman that can outwork me. 
Okay, I'll go ahead and guarantee that and do things that I can't do. And, and some of that is strictly knowledge. And occasionally, biology comes into play. But there is little, very little, that a woman can't do physically. But we decide that she, makes, she has to stay in her lane. Now, this particular female, Tamar, had to present herself as a prostitute to get Judah to fulfill his oath. Very quickly, if you don't remember the story, let me tell you. Tamar married Judah's oldest son. And Judah's oldest son, had, uh, he, she had no children by that son. And the culture of the day, the rule of the day was, if that man had brothers and he died leaving the wife with no heirs, particularly no sons, then the next brother in line would marry her to make sure that there were sons to take care of her. Again, the assumption and, and the situation that in that culture she could not take care of herself. The thing is, that becomes that, that husband's firstborn. So it's, and, and that's not his, it's not considered his ancestor. It's considered that first husband's ancestor. So what ends up happening is that kid gets all of that daddy's inheritance and his own kids, as he would look at it, didn't. So the brothers all made sure that Tamar didn't get pregnant. Two or three brothers down, they didn't do what they were supposed to, the Lord took them out, the next one married, and finally there was one left and Judah said, I ain't having my last son killed because he won't do what he's supposed to, so just not going to give her a husband. Tamar is a Canaanite woman. She goes back home. She goes back to her town. She hears that Judah is coming to town to look at his sheep. She dresses up like a prostitute. She gets his attention. She gets pregnant with twins by Judah. And then we have the twins, Perez and Zerah, and that's how she forces Judah to fulfill his oath, which gets us into a whole nother realm of assumption. We assume a woman in power slept her way there, or we condemn the woman that makes desperate decisions because of a culture that put her in a desperate situation, and we'll look at Tamar and say she shouldn't have done that and Judah looked at Tamar and said she was more righteous than me but our prejudices looking at a woman in a situation we say well I wonder what she did to get there speaking of that Rahab is the next one mentioned well the next one we're going to cover Rahab lived in Jericho as they were taken over the as the Israelites were taken over the promised land she helped the spies when they came in they stayed at her house her house was very likely a brothel she helped them she was preserved when Jericho fell her house didn't fall her family wasn't killed later on she gets married to a guy named Salmon God used a prostitute. That prostitute became a part of the chosen people. She, she married into the family, and then she became a grandmother to Jesus. But we would look at Rahab and make all kinds of assumptions. All kinds of prejudices. Maybe rather than the prejudices toward what she is, maybe we should look at who she is. And when we see them in our own community, when we see people in that situation in our own community, rather than assumptions about the stripper or the hooker, why don't we look with compassion and seek to rectify the situation that drove her to such a career choice? Why don't we look at the person? And say, 
with compassion. Why are you there? What would have to be different in your life for you not to be there? Not, well, why is she doing that? That's not the same. It's the same question, but it's not the same intent. Ruth, on down the line, another one who marries in. She is a a pure foreigner. Rahab was a foreigner as well. Ruth had no other uh, uh, negative aspects to her other than she was a foreigner. As a matter of fact, she was an enemy of Israel being a Moabite. So we have now a mixed-race marriage, being from Moab, being from further away. And then we would ask the question, if you go back and read the story, Ruth, uh, her her mama, her her mother-in-law, Naomi, and her husband move to Moab. There's a famine in Israel. They move to Moab where there's food. While there, the two sons marry two girls, uh, Ruth and Orpah. And the two sons die. The, uh, Naomi's husband dies. They've got nothing there. So they come back to Israel. Now there's food. Ruth tells the daughters-in-law, y'all go back home. Find you a husband there. Have kids. Settle down. Have security. I can't give you security. She says, I can't have any more kids. Even if I could, you're going to wait 15 years till they're old enough to marry. You're not going to do that. Just... I'm I'm releasing you from any bond, any connection, any obligation you have to me. And Orpah says, this is sad, bye. And she goes home. And Ruth says, I'm sticking with you. I'm here. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. I'm sticking around. And so now they have to struggle together to eat, to make ends meet, And we would ask the question today, why didn't she just go back to her own kind? Get back across the border. Work there. Get your job there. Get your money there. Get your food there. That's where your family is. Don't come here for a better life. She was using up the resources of the Israelites. She was taking their jobs and living on welfare. She was a foreigner. Go back, get a job where you came from. It is not our responsibility to take care of you. And everybody in town knew she was Ruth the Moabitess. They knew who she was. Everybody in Bethlehem. They knew. Why is she sticking around here? Now, later on, man, she has done a great thing in taking care of her mother-in-law. That was not, I promise you, everyone's opinion. Go back where you came from. David. David was abusive. He was also an adulterous murderer. But that would probably kind of go hand in hand with abusive. And we would come along here, and we would read about David, and we know what we did. Even the genealogy says he fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Bathsheba isn't even mentioned, but we know, we've read the story. He only, took, he only had Uriah's wife because he saw her, he wanted her, he took her because he was king and he could. That's an abuse of power. Probably raped her in any, in, in any other situation. That's what we would call it. And then when she, oopsies, got pregnant, we got to kill the husband so I can have her. And he does. He orders Joab to have him killed. We would easily come to David and have an assumption of irredeemability. David's done. David is absolutely done. That would be our prejudice toward David. Now, I feel like I need to qualify this one, especially in today's climate and things that are going on in the halls of power. 
from government to seminaries to conventions. Abusiveness can and should disqualify you from leadership. Period. Cuomo should step down. Okay? Paige Patterson at Southwestern was fired accurately. We can, we can keep going. And I would, but I'd make a lot of y'all mad. So I'll just stop there. But men in leadership, and women too, who abuse their power for any reason, but especially to prey sexually on the weak, should lose that power, should lose that position, should lose their leadership. But it does not disqualify them from mercy, grace, and forgiveness. Mercy, grace, and forgiveness does not mean you get to continue in a position where you can potentially abuse people later on. Because that is, for many, a besetting, habitual sin. And they need to be taken out of the situations where they can do that. But that does not mean that they are useless to God and outside the ability to be redeemed spiritually. And yet we, many, would say they are. Depending on if we liked the person to begin with or not. We're, we got grace and mercy for the ones we like. And the ones we don't. Next is Bathsheba. Not even mentioned, right? Just Uriah's wife. Poor girl, doesn't even get her name in here. She was abused. By the way, she was also probably black. But abuse, or rather, victim blaming and shaming is a thing. If you don't believe me, pick up some commentaries and see how they will talk about how Bathsheba shouldn't have been bathing on the roof. And yet, what we find out when we do a cultural study is that everybody bathed on the roof. They didn't have inside bathrooms. They didn't have inside bathtubs. That's where everybody bathed. And if you read the story, you find that nowhere does it say, and Bathsheba shouldn't have been bathing on the roof. What you find is David's at home at the time when the kings went out to war. David was where he was not supposed to be, not Bathsheba. But we assume the victim in some way, somehow, probably, at least a little bit, maybe they dressed too provocatively, or maybe they talked too flirtatiously, assumed they brought the abuse on themselves. And then if we don't do that, it, then we assume that the victim is overreacting or is milking the trauma. We make those assumptions as well. And we tell the abused, shut up, we don't want to hear about it anymore. And possibly we tell them, shut up, we don't want to hear about it at all, because we really liked that Ravi Zacharias guy. He said some good things. So we don't want to hear that he was a sexual predator who abused women. Then, of course, we have our racial prejudices to, to find that Bathsheba was probably black or that the fact that there are dozens and dozens of blacks and or Africans in the Bible blows some of us away. The fact that our Sunday school picture of Jesus as a white guy from Norway doesn't fit just really messes with our mind. Unlikely that there's anyone that is white in the Bible, the closest you might get would be Cornelius, who is Italian. And up until the early 20th century, Italians weren't considered white. We make assumptions about people on their skin color or their culture simply because we distrust the skin color or we dislike the culture. We hear a car outside on the corner of our street in the middle of a prayer with an obnoxious muffler. Did, am I the only one that noticed that? 
and we immediately assume, I do, stupid redneck, I do, I did, I wasn't focused on God, I was focused on my prejudice because of that muffler. That may be a little too much confession for some of y'all. But that's what we do. Because I don't like loud mufflers. I think they're ridiculous. Why would you spend money on that? They're annoying in the middle of a church service. And I don't like them at night when you're driving down my street either. Get off my lawn, right? It's a prejudice. It's an assumption. I don't like that rap music. So anybody that listens to it is suspect. That's us. I don't like that Barry Manilow music. Anybody who listens to him is suspect. See, it goes both ways. Solomon, a philanderer. 700, uh, 300 wives, 700 concubines. We all know about that. He was also an uncaring king, or we might say an uncaring boss. We find out that he taxed, like, taxed the people like crazy. He was ruthless in driving the people. We find that out actually when they start talking to Rehoboam, his son, who's going to take over. And they're going to tell Rehoboam later to, hey, hold up. And, but, but Solomon was a horrible king. All the wisdom in the world, literally. And he was a philanderer and a, literally, slave driver. He was also the fool that lost his daddy's kingdom. That fell in his lap because of his failures in leadership. And we will come across a boss, uh, a person in authority, and we will look at him and he will have these characteristics and we will make assumptions. And understand, our assumptions might be right. Okay? They might be the kind of person that we expect a person with that characteristic or those characteristics to be. But that doesn't mean we write them off. That doesn't mean that they aren't our one. The one that we have to work on. Rehoboam, his son, was an arrogant jerk. He, Rehoboam was the, the Gen X or the, the, the millennial or the Gen Z that won't listen to the boomers. Won't listen to his elders. The elders sit around and say... Rehoboam, you can win these people over if you just ease up on the stuff Solomon did. You don't do what he did. And all his buddies who are his, his age say, hey, no, you do it worse. You'll show them. And that's what Rehoboam comes out and does. Daddy ain't got nothing on me. Y'all think y'all suffered under him? Y'all gonna really suffer under me. He, he stamped his foot and he demanded his way. And he had the authority to force it in. As a matter of fact, we sit today and we talk to, we, we, we read the passage and we think we would tell him, listen to those elders. They're trying to get you to help your people, to do good things for your people. But often, we would likely, in today's time, we would brand those elders as snowflakes. Ah, don't be lenient with the people. You gotta be hard, you gotta be, you gotta be mean, you gotta say it like it is, and if they don't like it, they're just snowflakes. Ahaz, moving down a few generations, child sacrifice. And here you say, Michael, we don't have kings that sacrifice children anymore. You're right, we don't have kings do it. We call them abortion providers. We sacrifice children. Today. And we sacrifice them to any number of situations. But we make the assumption that the abortionist is too far gone and the one having the abortion 
is cruel and merely does not want to be inconvenienced. I just don't want a kid right now. And both of those things may be the case. But, but check your membership card and see if at title it says Holy Spirit. And if your card says Holy Spirit, then you get to make the determinations about who is too far gone and who has made their decisions out of evil intent. But if it, if it doesn't, then maybe we should take a different track. Maybe we should make assumptions and give no thought, or maybe we shouldn't, rather. We do make assumptions and we give no thought for the pain and grief left in abortion's wake. We give no thought of the intense struggle or outside pressure or the sense of hopelessness or the complete lack of options that many who have an abortion feel. And, 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 and we, but we do, right? Because we're good people. We think about that, we just don't really act on it that much. And, and, and maybe we do act on it. We support a crisis pregnancy center. Our church does. We give money every year to uh, a crisis pregnancy center. Do you remember the total? You sent that to me uh, just a few weeks ago. I wish I'd called it up. Just to, we, we've, we've given a, a, quite a bit over the years, but... Uh, Abortion is a tremendous evil. It is a sin. But if we yell about the sin and don't do anything to love the sinner, why does it matter? Etta and I have a good friend who is very involved in crisis pregnancy centers, and, and uh, she's extremely pro-life, and she had a co-worker, college, she went back to college and got her law degree, so when I say college friend, I'm talking to, you know, older, who was pregnant, I don't remember all the details, but was considering an abortion. And our friend talked to her regularly about that offered every kind of help and resource that she could possibly do to get her friend to not go through with it. And she thought, the, the, the friend made the appointment, and even up to the day before the appointment, our friend thought she had convinced her friend not to go through with it, that she would be there with her every step of the way on the other side of birth. Whatever she needed, she would help. And the friend went through with it anyway. And we got the text from our friend. She did it. And it would have been extremely easy for our friend to say, fine, that's the way you want to do it, you do it. John Young. And that's not what she did. She made sure that the person knew on the pregnant side of abortion, I do not want you to do this. Here are all the reasons I don't. Here are all the reasons I will help you if you don't. But I love you. And I will be with you up to that point. And regardless of the decision you make, I will be with you after that point. I will not love you less. Would our prejudices against abortion allow us to make such an incredible stand to be with someone that goes through that? Then we skip a little bit more. We come to Joseph. Joseph was a nobody. He, I mean, he's just small-town guy living in a lonely world. Thank you, Journey fans. Nobodies don't deserve our time. The nobodies don't matter. 
If they're a nobody now, they'll probably always be a nobody. Joseph was a nobody. Except he's the guy that got to raise the Messiah. Got to teach him how to do stuff. Throw the ball with him. Teach him how to carve things. Teach him how to use the power tools because Joseph knew how. As we move through the New Testament in our readings coming up, the New Testament will tell us of prostitutes and murderers and witches and foreigners and dwarves and soldiers and eunuchs and the powerful and the weak and other races and every other stereotype we can think of coming to Jesus and being part of one family because, according to Ephesians 2.14, Christ tore down the dividing wall between people. And all of those prejudices, all of those differences, no longer mattered. Because all of these people, every one of them that we've read about, was made in God's image, was loved by God, was undeserving of salvation, and they were all died for by Jesus. They didn't all have faith. We're not talking about all believers here. Ahaz never turned around. A number of those kings didn't. Manasseh was not a follower of God at all. He was considered the most evil of all the kings. And yet God loved every one of them. Every one of them was made in His image. Jesus came for the one percenters and the down and outs. He came for the mama's boys and the effeminate and lesbians and gays. He came for the males and the females and for those who are confused about which is which. He came for the prostitutes and the strippers and the gigolos and the pornographers and every other seedy profession. He came for foreigners in a strange land and people that don't look like you and people that do look like you and people who are just trying to survive and people who make a living off of government handouts. He came for abusers and adulterers and murderers and liars and slanderers and gossips and drug addicts and alcoholics, which the Bible actually actually tells us many of you were for the abused and hurt and traumatized and it doesn't matter how the situation came about he came for the narcissistic philanderer and the power hungry despot he came for the arrogant jerk from every generation and the pit uh, the pitiful snowflakes and the pitiable self-righteous fools in front of keyboards and TV screens that call people they don't agree with names like snowflake He came for the abortionists and the ones who have had abortions and the ones that cheer abortion and the ones that propagate abortions. For the nothing and the nobody and the no one and the not worth a darn and the one society would have nothing to do with. And it is not our job, it is not your job to scream at them about how awful and wrong they are and to wail and rail against a sinful world and a culture you just don't get anymore but to love them and tell them how incredibly special they are to God and how they're made in His image and how He loved them so much that He sent His Son to die for them. But you can't do that if you hate them and hold on to your prejudices about them. You can't. And you won't. It isn't woke or cultural Marxism, or liberalism, or being a snowflake, or whatever pejorative you prefer, to admit that we have prejudices, to admit they are a part of everything we do to some extent, and then to rid, them, rid ourselves of them, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. It is merely what the Bible calls sanctification. That's all it is. It's us examining our lives and trying to be more like Jesus. So we need to get out of our prejudices. prejudices. The last person not mentioned actually in the genealogy is you. 
we got prejudices against you. I have prejudices against you. Y'all have prejudices against each other. Even in such a homogeneous group, we assume things negatively about each other simply because of what little we might know about each other. And God loves you. And Jesus died for you. And we can set aside those prejudices most of the time to come and worship together and be a family. We need to open up that tent. Widen that tent. And say there's room for a lot more people here. People that I would hold a prejudice against and do. But I'm going to set that aside because Jesus loves that person. And maybe you as a sinner, someone who's not followed Jesus, someone for whom these prejudices have a demonic hold because you've got nothing in your heart to fight against him, maybe you need Jesus today. Maybe you're one of the ones I mentioned. That long list of those Jesus came for. That doesn't define you. And yes, that may be a sinful act or activity you are involved in, but to, to, just to tell you the truth, I don't care what you're in right now. I care what believers are in. I care what believers are doing. But right now, I need you to come to Jesus. Rosario Butterfield, who was a uh, lesbian English professor at some college, found Jesus, got married, has children, married a man, has children. And she has said numerous times, my homosexuality was not my problem. It was sinful. She's not saying that. My homosexuality was not my problem. My, my biggest need was not to rid myself of homosexuality. My biggest need was to have Jesus. Let's let Jesus take care of all the other stuff. And we take Jesus to a lost and dying world. Because again, unless your card says, Holy Spirit, you're not going to be able to change the hearts of people. Only God can. It's our job to introduce them to the one who can. Who by faith, when we recognize our sinfulness and that we have fallen short of the glory of God, come to him and say, Lord, I am a sinner. And I understand that the wages of my sin is death. The wages of my one percentedness however I got there, the cheating or the, the wages of abortion or the wages of, a homosexual, of homosexuality or the wages of lying and slandering and gossiping and the wages of anything and more that I have mentioned this morning is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. I can be forgiven. An abortionist, one who's had an abortion, an abuser, a philanderer, an arrogant jerk. I can be forgiven. And I can have eternal life. God proved it when Jesus died for us. And all you need to do this morning is call the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. And the Holy Spirit will work on you about all this other stuff. What I want you to hear, unbeliever, is come to Jesus. What I want you to hear, believer, if you have those things in your life, work on them. And if you think you're good because you don't have those things in your life, huh, work on that because you ain't good either. And share with people the only thing that will change them. Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for speaking your word today. Lord, I pray that it is your word, not mine. 
that it has been your word, not mine. And God, we as a church will be a church without prejudice. That's, that's a great dream. How about, Lord, we are just a church that is working on our prejudices, recognizing them when we see them, and laying them on the altar to be burned up, sacrificed to you, for you, to replace them with something so much greater. Love for our neighbor. God, we pray for a move of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, if you've never trusted Jesus and you're in the room, Tom and Amy are in the back. They would love to talk to you about that if you'd like to have that explained a little bit better or just say, this is what I want to do. If you're watching online and you want to do that, message us, email us. We'd love to hear about that. Believer, what are some prejudices you need to give up this morning? I pray they weigh on you so heavily that you can't just stand there. You have to do something to lay them at the altar. If it's turning and kneeling where you are, it's probably all you need to do. There's nothing special up here, no stairs just to sit on. But what is God telling you this morning? We're going to continue to worship. We're going to sing about coming to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. You can do that this morning as we stand and we sing and you do business with him today.